0: And uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of, our, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Lord, um, you command that we pray for all people and especially for those in authority. And so, Lord, we pray this morning for our government, for our leaders, for those in, in uh, charge of the nation. Lord, with um, with uh, two men being found guilty of, uh, of various crimes involved in the recent election, Lord, it... it um, kind of sends a shudder through the, our political system, and I just pray, Lord, that you would grant us um, peace as we go through this, Lord, that justice would be served where uh, the guilty are guilty, they would be proven guilty, where the innocent are innocent, they would be released, and Lord, that we would have uh, smooth uh, transitions of power, that that uh, you would grant us the peace and stability in our political institutions, and Lord, one of the things that seems to lean against that is the recent death of John McCain. Um, Lord, he, he was a, um, a war hero. He was an honorable man, a man of principle. And Father, there are far too few politicians who are politicians of principle on either side of the aisle. And so Lord, we will sorely miss Senator McCain, um, right, wrong, um, on the nose, out in left field. He was always a stabilizing force, and, and uh, so Lord, we pray for his family at uh, Senator McCain's passing uh, as they mourn their father, their husband, their grandfather. Uh, Lord, we pray that um, that you would raise up more politicians of that same type who are principled men and women who uh, can look beyond the politics and lead our country in um, in solid and helpful ways. Uh, so Lord, we, we just pray for our government. Um, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing that we have a democracy. We thank you for that, we pray that we're able to keep it. Um, Father, would you be with us now as we look to your word, as we hear about um, the conversion of Saul? Lord, would you show us what that means for us today, the imp- impact that has for us, and uh, your purpose in saving this man um, so that all of those things come together to glorify Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask. Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, the conversion of Saul, pretty obvious from the reading, hard to come up with a better title than Saul's conversion. Um, So the way it's going to break out, the way the story kind of goes is it starts with this brief introduction. It's kind of the need for Saul's conversion. This is what this is why Saul needs to be saved. Um, and, And we'll hear a little bit about that. Then we'll hear about Saul's actual conversion, his, his confrontation with Jesus and his conversion. And then we'll get a little bit, just a touch of his newly converted life in Christ, what that begins to look like. So that's, that's where we're going to go with this. Um, this story is really important in the book of Acts. And the reason I say that is because it's told in full three times. It's told here, it's told in chapter 22, and then again in chapter 26. And in 22 and 26, it's not summarized, it's not condensed. It's this whole story told again. So when, when something's repeated, you got to pay attention. When a big chunk like this is repeated, you got to pay attention. It means something. So where I want to go with this this morning is I want to take this telling on its own. Um, the other stories, the other times it's repeated, there's additional information, and, and it's told in different ways. But what I want to try to do is just take this as it stands and listen to what, what Luke is telling us about Saul at this point. So then when we get to the other ones, we can you know, refer back and look at what we've seen so far, but uh, I'd just like to try to handle this one on its own. Uh, so first, let's start off with Saul's need for conversion. Um, it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Still breathing threats and murder. Still, He'd, he had been doing this. Remember how we were introduced to him. In uh, chapter uh, eight, verse one, Saul approves of Stephen's execution. He had just stood there and gathered the cloaks of those who were stoning this young man to death. And then Luke's comment is, Saul approved. He thought this was a good idea to kill this man. And then in verse 3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was doing that in Jerusalem. So that's where he was focused. Is he's trying to snuff out this cult of the Nazarene. This, this, this uh, false doctrine that's rising up in the church, and he's trying to, he's trying to contain it while he's in Jerusalem. So he's, now it's still going on. It, it hasn't gone away. So Saul continues to breathe threats and, vi- and murder. How do you breathe murder? Well, I had some pepperonis back there, so my breath may be a little bad, but I don't think it's going to kill anybody. <laughs> what he means by breathing threats and murder is this was his continuous speech. This was always what was coming out of his mouth is Paul was adamant that the church was wrong, that Jesus was wrong, that this was, this was detrimental to Judaism as he understood it. So he is so opposed to it that he's threatening murder for these people. That's how, how strongly he held it. So he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Has Paul succeeded in keeping Christianity under, under wraps there in Jerusalem? We've already seen it went to Samaria. By the way, there are disciples in Damascus. It's spread that far. Uh, AJ, would you throw that map up real quick? Um, Just one little thing on this entire map that's changed. Way up at the very top, it says Damascus. Damascus is in Syria. It's not part of uh, Jerusalem. It's not part of Judea. It's not part of Samaria. So the church is already now beginning to tip into the ends of the world as we move into Syria, in, into Gentile territory. This is where Saul is heading. He's heading to Damascus, and he's bringing letters to the synagogues, and these letters come from the high priest. So what kind of authority does the high priest have over a synagogue? Um, there's, there's a little bit of debate about it. It could just be inform, what I call informal authority. Um, that's when simply being who you are carries the weight of people saying, well, we should, we should do that. So it might be that the high priest's name on the letter is enough to have people go, oh, okay, well, we'll listen. That's informal authority. Um, it's probably not a formal Roman authority. Um, the, the, the letters are to synagogue leaders, not to city officials. And Roman authority didn't really care about the synagogues. As long as they were not causing trouble, they were fine. So it's probably not a formal Roman authority, but it's possible that it is a formal authority within the structure of Judaism, because one of the things that um, the high priest is, is considered is a leader. Um, in Acts 23, when Paul is arrested and taken before the, the, the court, he lips off to, the, um, to somebody he doesn't know in the court, he calls him a whitewashed tomb or something, I forget what he called him. And he struck on the face and they said, do you talk that way to the high priest? And Paul responds, I did not know brothers that he was a high priest for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So the high priest is a form of a ruler. So the high priest within the structures of Judaism probably had authority to write to those those synagogue leaders and say, if you know of any of these people who are following the Nazarene, you're gonna turn them over to Saul and he's gonna arrest them. That's how it's going to be. So kind of an odd mixture of a formal and an informal authority. Um, it fit within the Jewish community, but not under legal authority of Rome. So if they didn't have the authority of Rome to arrest these people, how on earth is he grabbing them, chaining them, and hauling them away from all the way up in Damascus down back down to Jerusalem? Well, might makes right. If you're strong enough to do it, you can do that. That's called kidnapping if you don't have legal authority to do it. So that's, that's Saul's approach to taking care of this this uh, uh, issue with the Nazarene is I'm going to drag his people from all the way up in Damascus. I'm going to drag them all the way down to Jerusalem and we're going to throw them in jail. And it says that if he found anyone belonging to the way, um, the way is uh, not a destination. It's not a rest stop. It is a way of life. And, and it's ref- the, uh, the church is referred to as the way a few times in the book of Acts. Um, it's not a name that's stuck. Uh, it, it kind of faded. Eventually, we'll hear that the, church, the believers were called Christians. But at this point, it's, that's the, the beginning of the emergence away from Judaism is now it's called the way. And I think it's a, a reminder when it says the way that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a station you arrive at where you get a certificate and says now you're, a, now you're a disciple and you can just you know, coast the rest of the way. The, way, the word there is for a road or a path or a direction. So what it's talking about is as we follow Christ, we're continuing on this way. We're continuing in this way of life. We're heading in a certain direction, and it continues on and on and on. So the name is actually really descriptive, and I think it's really helpful to remind us discipleship is an ongoing process. It's not someplace we, we just land at. So he's gone to arrest anyone belonging to the way, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And, and then um, just to flesh out his intention here, his purpose here, in verse 13, Ananias explaining to Jesus as if Jesus didn't know, Lord, I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He has authority from the chief priests. The chief priests in this instance are recognized as having an authority and they have bestowed that authority on, Paul, or on Saul. So that's, that's who Saul is. That's the way he's going. Now, where I broke it, we don't get to hear it, but it says that, um, that he's going to arrest anybody who uh, belongs to the way. And then in another verse it says, and then on his way to, to uh, Damascus. And so you figure, oh, this is a really cool play on words. Now, only in English, sorry. <laughs> in Greek, it's two very different words. Uh, one is a path, a road, a destination. The other one is his traveling itinerary. So sorry. Um, I was excited about that too until I looked. Um, just doesn't work that way. So here's a question. If this is Paul's approach, if this is what Paul's main goal in doing this is, why is he so vicious? Why is he so outrageously vicious against this small cult of believers, these little group of people who are following um, this Nazarene named Jesus? Why would he be so upset? Well, let's listen to Paul's own explanation for what he's up to. Uh, in verse in chapter 22, which I said I wasn't going to read, but I'm going there anyway. So call me a hypocrite. Um, just wanted to quote a little thing that he said as he's introducing his his story. This is not part of a story, but it's kind of introducing it. Um, he's he's defending himself before the council, and he says, "I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel." That that magnificent, huge rabbi we met earlier, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So that's our first hint into what is driving Saul to be so vicious against the way, is because he is zealous for God. And zealotry can do these kind of things. It can lead you to this kind of violence, this kind of overarching, you know, nothing else matters. But in Galatians, when Paul is explaining his conversion, he also says, Galatians 1, starting in verse 13, he says, For you heard of my former life in Judaism. This was before he became a believer. You heard of my former life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So here's Paul saying, before I became a believer, I was zealous. I was zealous for God, and I was zealous for the traditions of our fathers. And now, remember what the accusation against um, um, Stephen was. He was attacking God and Moses and the temple, is is the accusation. So if Saul is, is looking at the way and saying, it's attacking Moses, It's going after our traditions, the way that we read and we understand Moses, the way that we implement the law that Moses has given us. That's what they're attacking? That's a problem. They're they're saying the the temple is no longer so important because Jesus has come and died. They're They're tearing down our traditions. So this is just my theory, but it sounds like what Saul is so upset about is this new religious movement that's beginning to form within Judaism is threatening his future my plan was I was gonna be at the feet of Gamaliel I'm a I'm a Jew born of the tribe of Benjamin I have all the credentials I have all the education I have everything so that when I get old enough I will be the next Gamaliel I will be the next thing I'm gonna protect these traditions because that was the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes was these traditions. How do you implement the Bible? How do you understand the law? How do you do this? How do you do that? Well, we add all these laws to it and these additional rules. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath? Great. You're not allowed to do this on the Sabbath either. That was his career path. And so when he's looking at this and he says, these people who are talking about this Jesus, the Nazarene who's supposed to be been raised from the dead, you're threatening my future. You're threatening my career path. This is what I love, this is what I delight in, this is the most important thing for me. And so don't you're not allowed to threaten that. I'm I'm gonna use all of the legal authority I have at my disposal to stop this movement before it tears down everything I believe. Now let's diagnose that a little bit. Let's pull that back a little bit. What is Paul loving here? What is the most important thing for him? It's his religion. And by religion, I don't mean his faith. I mean his structures, his practices, his things that he does. The most important thing for him is the tradition of the fathers, because that's what's being threatened at this point. Now, he says he was zealous for God, so the second most important thing is God, his understanding of God. So he loves his traditions, and he loves God. But wait a minute, what's the greatest commandment? The first one we're supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where's tradition? Where are the religious practices? Where is the structure of your religion in that? It's not first and it's not second. The problem we have here is Paul, or Saul, I'm sorry. Saul has put as number one traditions. That put God to number two and what happens to the neighbor and, and others. I'll kill them. They become a disposable thing if they get in the way of number one and number two. So as Saul is going out to arrest people, he's not going to arrest Gentiles. He wouldn't be heading to the synagogue if he was looking for Gentiles. Saul is heading to the synagogues to arrest Jews, his own countrymen. He's supposed to love his neighbor as himself. The Pharisees had this argument with Jesus about, wait a minute now, who's my my neighbor? But let's just give them, for for the moment, let's just give them their neighbor is only another Jew. Saul's going to arrest them. Saul's going to persecute them. Saul is violently opposing them. So look at the order of his loves. Tradition first, God second. And then there's a big vacuum. Anything gets in the way is, is going to get in trouble. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how, how it's supposed to work. The, the mark of a heart that is converted, the mark of a heart that is after God, is love. That's how you know if you have truly uh, become a believer in God, is, is you have love. Where do I get that from? 1 John chapter 4. There's a number of places I could have picked, it, picked from 1 John 4. It's just littered with this. But I think this was the best distillation. Beginning in verse 7, John says, beloved, beloved. What's he going to talk about? Love. And he, he addresses his people and he says, beloved. So even in his manner, even in his approach, he starts out with love. And now listen to where he goes with it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love And no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Does that sound like Saul? What we hear of Saul is a great amount of hatred. And that's what clinging to religion, that's what putting religion in number one position can do, is not generate love, but generate hatred and violence. That's the danger of this. Now, if you have... God is number one position and neighbor is self in number two position. Will you be mad at people? Yeah, yeah. When they're doing something that's harmful to themselves, that's going to lead them in a bad direction, yeah, you're going to be mad at them. So it's not a matter of Paul is wrong for being angry with Christians. He thinks they're wrong. The problem is he's not just angry, he's violent. He hates them. He's going to arrest them and throw them into jail. And this is why Paul needs to be converted. He's extraordinarily religious. He's got all the traditions. He studied all the right rabbis. He's done all the right things. He's got his religion, and he is emotional. His heart is a wreck. It's all in the wrong place, and you can tell because it exhibits itself. It exudes itself in hatred and violence. So that's why Paul needs to be converted. And it's not a bad diagnostic to ask ourselves, Lord, how am I doing in this? Is there something that is snuck into number one position that if anybody touches that, I'm going to get angry and hate rather than be angry and love? What, am I, what is my number one and number two position? Are they you and my neighbor or are they my position and my God? Are they my respect and my God? What, what am I in danger of placing in that number one position that could drive me to be that way? It's a good diagnostic. It's not a bad question to ask yourself, how are you doing? How how are you approaching things? How do you handle anger? How do you handle somebody who's in error? Uh, Can you love them at the same time as be angry with them? If they're threatening the most important thing to you, then you can't. You can't love them because it's threatening. If they can't possibly touch the most important thing to you, you can be angry with them and, and still love them. That's why Stephen, remember Stephen, He could look at the end of his life as the rocks are being raised above his head and say, I see Jesus in heaven at the right hand of the glory of God. I see something you can't possibly take away from me. Why, as he's dying, his final breath could be, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. He's loving his neighbor at that point, even though they are stoning him to death. That's extraordinary, and that's what we're being called to do. That's what Saul needs at this point. He needs his heart changed. He needs his loves ordered. He needs to love the right things first. And and that's where we find him next in his conversion. This is the longest section of the piece. Um, There's a, a lot of detail in it. So again, it's important to Luke. So here's what he says. Now he went on his way. That was the wordplay I was reaching for. It didn't work. Um, And he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. That that word for "shone" is kind of flashing. It's it's not just like a spotlight shining on him. It's it's this dazzling, moving light, this thing that, that surrounded him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say, so falling to the ground, was he on a horse? We always say that Saul was thrown from the horse to the ground. Is there a horse mentioned here? A bunch of medieval paintings have Saul laying on the ground in a dramatic pose and a horse rearing up beside him. He might not, probably wasn't with a horse. It, It doesn't matter. It's not important. The point is he wound up on the ground. This light was so dazzling, it was such an interruption in his plan, he fell to the ground. And so as he falls, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He hears this voice, he's surrounded by light, he hears a voice, and he hasn't a clue who it is. And so he asks, who are you, Lord? Now, when he says, who are you, Lord, he is not using Lord in the technical sense that we would use Lord when we talk about God in the Old Testament, the Lord. It's not quite the word sir. It's a little bit more respect than that, but it's less than divinity. So all he's saying is, I recognize that someone much more powerful than me is present. There is someone who has got greater authority than I have. There's something magnificent going on here. And so what he says is a term of respect. Who are you, great sir? That's what he's asking. And so he doesn't have any idea. Now, how can he not have any idea who he's persecuting? I guess maybe he's thinking this is one of the disciples in Damascus. Uh, This is somebody I should really pay attention to. Maybe I shouldn't go arrest these folks. Who are you, sir? And I won't arrest you. He's not quite there yet. But the answer is startling. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Do you see how closely Jesus aligns with his church, with his people? When, when, When Stephen is being stoned, Jesus is not off in heaven going, oh, I didn't see that. He's right there with Stephen. He stood, remember I said he stood, he was standing next to the throne. He stood to receive Stephen. He stood to judge the people who were stoning him. He stood to receive his servant. Jesus is right there with us, even when we can't see him. So the the, uh, disciples in Damascus, the disciples in Jerusalem who Saul was persecuting, Jesus was right there with them, even though they couldn't see him. He's, he's so intimately involved with his people. He says, I'm not only right there, but when you persecute them, you're persecuting me. They're my people. She, the church, is my bride. And if you hit her, you hit me. That's an intimacy that we have with our Savior. And so he tells Saul, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he doesn't ask another question. He doesn't say, are you interested? Can I tell you about what he says is, but rise and enter the city. Immediately with Saul, he starts barking out orders. Saul doesn't even know who he is at this point, but he does know this man has greater authority than I do. And so if he tells me to do something, I'm going to say yes, sir, and I'm going to get up and go. So he says, Saul, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. There will be further instructions coming. Jesus immediately asserts his lordship over his worst enemy. He, he doesn't play any kind of games. He doesn't try to talk him into anything. He simply says, this is the way it is. Now go do what I tell you. And Saul does. He, he, he doesn't, you wouldn't resist this kind of authority. Now the thing is, it sa- Luke says next, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Um, now hearing the voice, technical Greek, mumbo-jumbo, technical Greek mumbo-jumbo. It can't be Saul's voice they're hearing. There's The way that the Greek is structured, that's not what they're saying. It just doesn't work that they're here. They're standing there, they hear Saul talking to himself. Um, They hear the voice. They hear Jesus say, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise and go in the city. But they see no one. So why does Luke throw that little bit in there? Well, there's some possibilities to the explanation of this. One of the things about Saul's conversion, and and I've been wrestling with this, I think this is the second most important event in Christian history. The The first most important event would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think this might be the second one because of what we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts, what Saul does is he's here trying to destroy the church, but what he winds up doing is spreading the church, establishing the church, taking the church across the known world at the time, and then writing most of the New Testament. So I think this moment may be the second most important time in, in uh, church history is this conversion of Saul. So the question then is, is it real? There were two gentlemen, I can't. one was uh, Lord Littlejohn or something like that, two guys in the, in the 1700s in England who said Christianity is just a, It's a myth, it's a story. We don't believe it. And so they would constantly dismiss and be condescending to Christianity. And then one day they said, you know, if it's such a myth, if it's so made up, then we should be able to poke holes through it very easily. And so they agreed, we'll do that. We'll poke holes through it. And so one gentleman said, I will write a book showing how the resurrection of Jesus Christ was completely fake. It never happened. And the other gentleman said, indeed, I'll write a book showing that Paul was never converted that his conversion was a fallacy. He made it up so that he could create this religion. And so they took off and they went to two books. And when they got back together, the first gentleman said, I've got something really, I need to, to tell you, I think the resurrection's real. I haven't been able to disprove it. And the other gentleman said, oh good, because Saul really was converted. So it's, it's that important, this, this conversion of Saul is this important to the establishment of Christianity. So the question is, did Saul he- hallucinate? Was he just traveling along? He had some sort of brain aneurysm and fell to the ground and started mumbling. Well, I think Luke puts an end to that because there were people traveling with Saul. Nobody traveled alone in those days. These long roads were dangerous. Rome had secured them, but there were still spots that were really dangerous. And so as Saul's traveling, he's got companions with him. Also, he's going to need help arresting Christians. So he's got some armed guards coming with him. They stood there, and they watched Saul fall to the ground. They saw the light. They heard a voice, and they didn't see anybody speaking. Now, in modern times, we'd go, well, they just rigged up some fancy lighting, maybe a little reflection off the sun, and then put a PA system out so they could yell from the rocks. Hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not possible back then. It just didn't work like that. They didn't have the technology to fake this. So it's not like it was a deception, and it wasn't like Saul... Hallucinated, if if he was hallucinating, it was so strong, it was so powerful, the other people heard it. That's a powerful hallucination. It doesn't work that way. It wasn't like the disciples tried to deceive him on the road either. They didn't have the technology to do this. They wouldn't be able to project a voice and light that far. They would have had to be right on top of him and then it'd be easy to take that apart. So did this really happen? Yeah, this really happened and that's why Luke puts those men there. That's why in the next two tellings of this, those men are present. Is we have external confirmed witnesses that this happened. It wasn't a brain aneurysm that left Paul temporarily blinded. It was something much bigger than that, something much more important. So they hear the voice and they see no one. It's not Paul's voice. It's it's not that they didn't. So here's a question. It says they heard a voice, but saw no one. Does that mean Saul did see someone? I don't know. It doesn't really say, does it? It simply tells us these guys who were with him didn't see a thing. They didn't see a person. So we don't know if if Saul saw Jesus himself standing there or simply the light. He could have had the light flash around him and been immediately blinded by it and seen nothing. At this point, he sees nothing but darkness. We don't know. Um, so, the, the lesson there is don't try to make the text say more than the text says. Don't for, force Luke's hand on this. He's told you what he wants to tell you, and that's all you get. So, stop. You can imagine a little bit, but I wouldn't go too far. Saul is not converted yet, he has not become a Christian at this point. He is simply confounded. He, he, something now has rocked his world, but he hasn't become part of the church. He's not converted yet. So this next portion of this is where he actually gains conversion. This is where he finally comes to see. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. So did... Ananias had the same vision that Saul had on the road. Now this was a vision vision. This wasn't an epiphany. An epiphany is when God shows up, and that's a big deal. What this man saw was he was probably sitting and praying or thinking or maybe taking a nap, and he suddenly sees a vision where Jesus comes and tells him this. He's a disciple at Damascus. What was his anticipated meeting with Saul at this point? Saul had letters. Saul had armed guards. Ananias' exposure to Saul was, he's going to arrest me. So when he tells Jesus, wait a minute, Lord, I've heard of this guy. He's, he's simply being honest. It's, it's not, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He's simply being honest with Jesus. Wait a minute, Lord. What I've heard about this man, we don't want him around. And so that's the problem is, is he's told, he tells him to go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas look for Saul. So Judas is not a member of the way because Saul wouldn't have been wa- welcomed in his house. That almost sounded like it hurt, but it didn't. <laughs> uh, Saul wouldn't have been welcomed in the house of a disciple, would he? So this man Judas is a Jew Judas is, you know, a Jewish name, who is one of the people that, that Saul knows. And so when he goes there, this man welcomes him in. And what, what happens, Saul? What's going on? So I wonder what happened to Judas here. He, he's he's got to be listening to Saul's story. What happened? You saw what? Where? Did you guys see that? So I wonder what's going on with Saul, with Judas. You don't get to find out, so don't ask. But I ask anyway, because it's hard not to. So this is a man who's not a believer either. And he lives there in Damascus, and so they they bring him there. Now, Saul is blind at this point. He can't see a thing, but he does see a vision. So he can't look and see Jesus standing in front of him, but he can receive internally this vision. And so a vision has come to Saul after he gets to Damascus, saying a man named Ananias is going to come and lay his hands on you. You'll be able to see, and you'll be fine. And that's the message to him. So Jesus is very active in this, isn't he? Jesus is the prime actor in all of this. He appears to Saul on the road, he appears to Ananias, and then he appears to Saul again, so that Saul will become a believer. I can't think of another case in the New Testament where somebody is converted without the means of the church. In other words, I can't think of another place in the book of, um, in the, the New Testament where somebody hears about Jesus from somebody other than the church. This is a unique experience. This is something that's very different, that Saul gets a direct exposure to Jesus Christ, and that's how he comes to believe in him. It's that big of a deal. So like I said, Ananias protests, Lord, I've heard about how much evil he's done. And Jesus tells him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So when did Jesus choose Paul? Saul. He'd always chosen him. He'd always had a plan for Saul. He, he, even as Saul is approving of the execution of Stephen, even as Saul is persecuting Jesus, Jesus is looking at him and says, I have a plan for you. You are a chosen instrument. You're chosen by me, and you will do my will. You're going to carry it out. He's a chosen instrument, and he will carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The Gentiles who who he would never have had anything to do with before. He would not not associate with them. He's going to carry the message to them. As a matter of fact, when Jesus one time had a run-in with the Pharisees, and Saul is a Pharisee, they asked Jesus, why is it that your disciples don't wash their hands after They go to the market. They they violate the traditions of the fathers. So here's again, that tradition is coming up. And Jesus looks at him, he quotes Isaiah, and he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God for your own traditions. And then what he does is he unpacks this idea that they had called korban. When when people aged in the uh, first century, they didn't have a 401k or an IRA to lean on. They had children. And so you would pass your fortune onto your children, your business onto your children with the expectation that they would take care of you in your old age. The Pharisees in their infinite wisdom devised this thing called korban, where you could look at mom and dad and go, anything I had is going to the temple. Sorry, can't take care of you now. You'd live on it, but you wouldn't give it to them. You wouldn't share it with them. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you do that and you set aside the commandment of God, the the fifth commandment that says, honor your mother and father, for your tradition. That's what you're setting aside. So the idea there was this washing your hands with the Gentiles. The, what happened was they go to the, they go to the market and they'd buy something, and there may be a danger that a Gentile touched it, and therefore it'd be unclean. It wasn't a hygiene thing, because they knew about germs or anything. It was a ritual thing. A dirty, filthy Gentile may have touched this. I, you have to wash your hands when you get back. Why are your disciples not doing that? Now Paul, the Pharisee is going to go to those dirty Gentiles. He's going to go carry this message of Jesus Christ to them. As a matter of fact, in Galatians, he's going to get angry with Peter because Peter shows up in Galatia and is afraid to eat with the Gentiles. He'll only eat with the Jewish believers. And Paul gets on him about that. He doesn't just take the message to the Gentiles and then back off. He is what he says later, I am all things to all men. To those under the law is one under the law. To those not under the law is one not under the law. So this is where Jesus is leading him. At this point, I don't think Saul can conceive of that. It's, it's too much information to gather at this point that he's going to go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, to kings, and to the, his brothers in Israel. That's, that's Jesus' call for him. That's his plan on his life, is you're going to take my message to all of these places, And then in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So is Jesus just turning up the pain screws? You know, you you picked on my people. You got to pay. You know, you did this much damage. You're going to have to suffer this much. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. That is the idea of karma. I do this much bad, I got to do this much good. I, I, I did some bad stuff, I got to suffer to make up for it. That's absolutely not the Christian way. And I can prove that. Aren't you glad? <laughs> you don't have to just take my word for it. Paul will gladly suffer in order to carry this message to those people he was just told. In other words, what he's about to face is worth more than what he, he's going to suffer This is his heart being rectified. It's set right. The tradition is fading. God is moving up into the first position and people are moving into the second. Because of that, he will go and he will suffer so that he can bring the message of God to people rather than his traditions. It's a beautiful thing that he's doing. He's not going to suffer to be cruel. As a matter of fact, if you remember in chapter 5, After Peter and John got arrested, they got beaten, they were released, and they told the church they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer, dishonor for the name. They had been beaten, and they left rejoicing. I've done something so right that I would be beaten for it, and I would delight in that. As a matter of fact, Paul himself in Philippians 3 explains this idea of suffering and why it's okay to suffer sometimes, not desirable, Not something you go out and stir up, but when it happens, it happens. This is what he says in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything as loss. No matter what I had before, it is a loss. I write it all off because what's greater is knowing Jesus Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Skipping ahead a little bit. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may, by any means, may uh, attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul looks and he says, I'm willing to suffer anything for what I gain in Christ. So to announce to me how much I must suffer is not a negative. It's not God putting the pain screws to Paul. It's saying, Saul, I think you're so much worthy that you're going to bear this, and I'm going to show you so much glory that it's going to be worth it. Whatever the world throws at you, however cruel, however heartless it can be to you, it's going to be worth it because you're going to see something much more glorious. The surpassing glory of Jesus Christ will weigh so much more that's that heart being rectified. That's that love being reordered, restructured as it should be. And so Saul, or so Ananias comes to Saul and addresses him, brother Saul. At first, I paused at that. I went, Isn't that beautiful? He's already addressing him as a Christian. That would be nice, but um, later on in Acts chapter thirteen. Saul goes to a synagogue and addresses and somebody says brothers have you got anything to read so that term brother is not strictly restricted to Christians only but it is used quite commonly in the book of Acts in the New Testament to talk about believers fellow believers so it's most likely that Ananias is addressing him as brother Saul the Jew that that's how probably how he sees him but don't forget at this point there's not a huge distinction between Jew and Christian the two haven't departed too far apart That's what Saul was trying to do, was trying to cut off one so that the other could survive. But they haven't become two very extremely distinct things so far. So when Ananias says, Brother Saul, it has a dual meaning. He's looking at him in two different ways. You're a Jew, but from what Jesus told me, from what I heard from my Savior, you're probably one of us now. And so he addresses him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What two wonderful promises. I know you're blind. I've come to give you your sight back and to fill you with the Holy Spirit. So first of all, he, he offers him this ability to see again. You're gonna, I'm going to fix your eyes. Now, Jesus himself could have just said, he can see now, and he could have just woken up one morning and seen. But Jesus chose not to do that. He chose to send somebody to him, send a disciple to him to do those two things, to fix his sight and to give him the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's Jesus' plan. And, and as I've said a number of times, he does these things on purpose. He has a reason for doing them. So he receives his sight. He, he, will, um, he will receive his sight when Ananias lays his hands on him. And so what it says next is, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. The, the word for scales there is like fish scales. So there was some murky thing on his eyes. Um, I don't know what that is. Later, Paul's going to say, look, I was blinded because of the, the, the brightness of the light. So if you get blinded by the light, it doesn't put scales on your eyes. It burns the retina at the back of your eye, damages it. That's why you can't see. So what is the scale that falls from the eyes? I have really no idea why it looked like that. Probably in my estimation, to show that something miraculous had happened, to show Paul's not faking it here. He's not making it up. Something actually came off his eyeballs so that he could see. So that's the first thing is he can see. What's up with the sight? The men weren't blinded, but Saul was. Well, I think if you look through the Gospels, what you'll see is Jesus heals people who are blind and blinds people who can see. He looks to the Pharisees who claim they can see and says, "No, you're blind, you don't get it. You don't see a thing." And then he comes to people who are blind and he heals them so that they can see. And the first thing they see is Jesus and they worship. So I think that's the, the picture, is, is God does a word play on this seeing and being blind, but since He's God, he does it in reality. The best I could do is tell a story about somebody who was blind and who now sees and somebody who could see and is now blind. God actually does it in reality. He actually physically makes it happen. His parables are rock solid, they happen in time. So Saul thought he could see clearly. He's looking at the church, he's looking at these people who follow this Nazarene and saying, you're messing it all up. I see clearly, you do not. And then he meets Jesus and he goes blind because he's got a transition from being blind to seeing. So Jesus made him physically blind so that he could physically see, so that he could open his eyes and go, now I get who Jesus is. Now I understand who he is. So that's the first thing is that he he's, he's recovers his sight. The second thing is he receives the Holy Spirit. Um, how does that look? Don't know, doesn't say. He may have started speaking in tongues. He may have done who knows what. But somehow, Ananias recognized he has now received the Holy Spirit. Whatever manifestation that looks like, however it takes place, the most important thing, the crucial part of receiving the Holy Spirit is Saul has now received the sign and seal of the new covenant. He has now been sealed in Christ by receiving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it to acquire or to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is that seal that God says, I am going to save you. You will be with me in glory. So I give you my Holy Spirit to seal that promise to you. And then in in Ephesians 4.30, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of of, uh, redemption. So that's the mark, that's the sign, that's the, the brand of the new covenant is to receive the Holy Spirit. And that's what Saul has just received. Saul is now converted. He is now a believer in Jesus Christ. But think about him sitting for three days. Saul's mind didn't, Magically get filled with a whole bunch of stuff. Saul's mind was filled with stuff as he's growing up and he's learning the way of the fathers and he's reading the scriptures and memorizing large chunks in, in Hebrew and studying under Gamaliel. He's got all of this scripture in his head. And so imagine what's going on as he sits in Judas's house in darkness for three days. He's looking back and he's, he's looking at this Jesus Christ and he goes, Stephen was right. He's raised from the dead. He's not dead anymore. I saw him standing there. Stephen was right. He's not not walking around the earth. He's in heaven. Stephen was right. He is powerful. I have to rethink all of this stuff. All of my definitions for the Messiah have now got a solid answer that has to align with that. And so it would have been something to be inside his head as he goes, oh, this this is about that? I had never considered it that way. What about this part? Oh, wow, look how that fits in. Isaiah 53, that was exactly what happened to Jesus. That was the suffering servant. The the noise that was going on in his head must have been amazing as he's processing all this information. And so now he comes to believe this Jesus really is raised from the dead. And what does he do with that? After the scales fall from his eyes, after he can now see, what does he do? He's baptized and then finally begins his converted life. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. You are not saved into isolation. It is not you and your Bible that you go off and you hive off by yourself and hide and everything is sufficient. And I'm preaching to the choir because y'all are in church today. We need each other. He needed to be with the disciples in Damascus. He needed to hear the stories of Jesus that he probably hadn't heard elsewhere. He needed to hear the prayers of the saints. He needed to learn what these folks had experienced. And we need that. That's why we gather together. We need each other. We need to hear what God is doing in each other's lives. It's important for us to be together. And and Sunday is extraordinarily important. We need to gather. We need to, to share with each other on Sunday morning. We also need to gather throughout the week in small groups and be in community with each other. Saul spent days with the disciples at Damascus. The very people he was coming to arrest, he's now having Bible studies with. He's now doing a potluck with them. He's now going and hanging out with them. Many days he was with them. And what did they do to him? What does this do to Saul? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Immediately. He didn't sit around and think about it for another couple of weeks. When he opened his eyes and he recognized, wait a minute, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that I've always thought. He's all said it right. The first thing he does is head to the synagogues and they're going, oh, you got the letter? No, 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 no. Forget the letter. That's not important. Look, Jesus is the son of God. Uh, But um, he's, he's completely flipped this around. He goes right to the synagogues and he says, Jesus is the son of God. The son of God. What a loaded phrase. What does the son of God mean? Well, the son of God could be the king. That would be the Messiah. Messiah means king, it's a ruler. And in 2 Samuel 7, 14, when God is making his covenant with David, in it he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So this father who God is to this son is Jesus. He is the, the son of David. He is the son of God. He is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. It rests on him. He is the son of God. But there's more to it. It's not just you get the right ruler in the place and he's called the son of God. Psalm 2 complicates that immensely. Psalm 2 verse 7, the Lord, the Lord said to me, the Lord said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's not just the son of God in a technical sense as a ruler, he is the son of God. The only begotten of the father. Eternal. This is what Saul is proclaiming in the synagogue, is he is the son of God. Utter heresy. The Jews believe in one God. He's a monotheistic God. He is one. You can't look at me and tell me that he's got a son. For a Jew to announce that is utter heresy. And Saul, who was advancing in the, the faith, who is advancing in the traditions of the Father, stands up, looks him in the face, and goes, Jesus is the Son of God. That is a radical, it doesn't get much more radical than this, that is a radical shift in worldview. That sets his world upside down. This Jesus now, whom I'm announcing to you, is the Son of God. Now, we don't get the full doctrine of the Trinity, That's, that takes them a while to begin to understand but he does understand there is more to Jesus than just David's son. And so all of those who heard him says, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem upon all who called upon his name? And didn't he come here for the purpose to bring them into the chief priests? Uh, and then verse 22, it says, Saul increased all the more in strength. It's not because he ended his fast and he ate. That happened days ago. Saul increased all the more in his strength his arguments, his understanding, his grasp of the Bible. He didn't have a moment where everything flipped and he understood it all. Saul is a human being. That's not how human brains work. Human brains take time to process things. One of the hardest things for us to do, one of the most difficult things for us to do is change our mind. It is documented. It's it's a psychological fact that it is really hard for you to change your mind. Especially if you believe something very firmly, you will have a hard time seeing contradictory facts come in. Even though they may be established facts, you can't recognize them. You don't process them well. So for Saul, it's taking time. He's got to work through all of these things. He's got to work through these understandings. He's got to see how they all fit together. And so as he does, he increases all the more in strength. His faith continues to grow. His grasp of the scriptures are getting stronger and stronger. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He demonstrated to them over and over again from scriptures. You see this verse, it means that. You see this verse, that means that. I saw the risen Christ. I saw Jesus standing. He's alive. He's not dead. We didn't kill him. And so he confounds them. They have no answer. Isn't that the same charge that was brought against Stephen? They couldn't answer Stephen. He was teaching him and they just had no way to undo what he was telling them. And now Saul, this advanced teacher in the traditions of the father, gets the same thing. He confounds them. He blows their minds. You're not going to believe this. Jesus is the Christ. The resurrection is what changed it all for Saul. Seeing Jesus raised. This is why I think it's so unique that Saul did not have somebody come and preach the gospel to him. He had Jesus come and preach the gospel to him. And that's what he'll tell the Galatians later on. He says, look, the gospel I've been preaching is not from men. I received it from the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's something unique about his ministry, something unique about his role, is that he had to receive it from Jesus Christ himself to be converted. Now, Jesus could have killed Saul on the road. Could have just stricken him dead. Just walking along and dropped right over. But he didn't. He he saved Saul in order to save his church. He stopped the man who was going to arrest his church. He turned him around, not back to Jerusalem, sent him on to Damascus and saved his church. Because Saul's part of the church. He doesn't know it yet. He wasn't aware of it. So his salvation wasn't private. Saul is baptized into the church. He becomes one of the believers. He now hangs around with the believers in Damascus for a while. Jesus is alive, he's risen from the dead, Stephen was right, and the resurrection changed literally everything for Saul. Everything. His career path, his education, his hermeneutic, his way of understanding the scriptures, his understanding of the future, he was still waiting for the Messiah, now he's just met him. Everything gets flipped upside down for him. So what are we supposed to do with this? this? How does this inform us? What does it do for us? I think the first question that you have to ask when you look at Saul's conversion, is anybody beyond the salvation of Jesus Christ? I can't think of a person who would have been more opposed to it than Saul. He was so opposed to it, he was arresting people. He he declared himself to violently oppose it. He was probably smacking people around as he was arresting him. And did God look at him and go, oh, you're too far gone? Jesus reached out and grabbed him. So, As you think of people, as you're praying throughout the week and you're thinking of folks, you may think of some folks who are just really rotten. They're just so far removed. They're not beyond Jesus' salvation. Saul was an appointed vessel. He was an appointed instrument. He was chosen. And so when Jesus came to him, Jesus came to him. So nobody is beyond the reach of salvation. And Saul demonstrates that. I think that's the the song of the rest of his life. Is I think that's probably one of the reasons that, that drove him through missions the way it did, is he said, anybody could be saved. Anybody. If I could be saved, anybody could be saved. Even Herod. He'll meet Herod, and Herod goes, Saul, you're, you're almost going to convert me. Goes, I wish you were. I wish you were like me. Even, he looks Herod in the face and says, even you can be saved. Salvation is offered to all. Nobody's passed it. The other thing is, will we face resistance? Will we face opposition? Does the church face opposition today? Has it faced opposition in the past? Can that opposition overcome it? Jesus promised, this is my church. I will establish it, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. There's no way that my church can stop. Because it's, it all depends on Jesus. It doesn't depend on us. So these kind of things, this this conversion of Saul can give us confidence as we're living our Christian life, as we're going about our business, as we're walking through life, and we get bumps and bruises from people saying horrible things about Christians and what terrible things they are, and aren't they um, hate-filled, hypocrite, hate-mongers, and all those things. And we can just, with the confidence of Saul, say it's not so. You simply don't know. And then to recognize you're not beyond salvation. It's empowering for mission, which is exactly what it does to Saul. Right, he he's gone from here. He's going to disappear for a little bit. When he comes back, he's on mission, and that's the rest of the book of Acts. That's that confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what that can do is can empower for missions. Because if Jesus is really raised from the dead, that means he's defeated death. If Jesus is really raised from the dead, that means there is a hope of resurrection in the future. If Jesus really is raised from the dead and he called Saul and drew him to himself. That means that he is sovereign. He is at the right hand of the glory of God in heaven. That's what that means. This isn't just nice doctrine on a printed page. This is reality. Jesus Christ is raised. It's that important and it's that life-changing. Let's close in prayer. Lord, uh, Stephen got to see you standing beside the throne of glory in heaven. Um, I'm presuming that Saul got to see you in that flash of light before he went blind, because he became convinced, he was was sure that you were raised from the dead. And Lord, I haven't seen you. I, I haven't met you personally, but Lord, I believe with everything I have that you are physically raised from the dead, that you have ascended into heaven, that you are seated at the right hand of glory, and that you rule from now until your return Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, may we trust that truth. May we trust that reality of who you are. And Lord, I pray that it would empower us. And thank you for saving Saul. Thank you for turning him around. May we have that confidence to know, Lord, that you can do that for anyone. And Lord, would you do that for a lot of people. Lord, we pray that you would turn many hearts and souls here in the Antelope Valley to trust in Jesus Christ. Draw many to yourself. Lord, I pray that the disciples here would be filled to the gills with new believers and having to disciple them and lead them in the faith for your glory, Lord, not for the building of our facilities and our programs and and, uh, and strengthening our budgets, but, Lord, for the glory of Jesus Christ to be shown here in the Antelope Valley. And, Lord, we ask these things in his name for his glory and for his purpose. Amen.